me, Daddy, if I die, will I go to heaven? So, of course, they would come and hear me preach all the time. We had devotions every day at the house, and sometimes we would talk about heaven and hell and repentance. And so naturally, at a very young age, they would be stirred up thinking, I don't want to go to a bad place, and I want to go to a good place. And so they would ask me, Daddy, if I die, this three- or four-year-old child, Daddy, if I die, will I go to heaven? And I would say, Honey, the Bible says that people who repent of their sins and trust in Jesus go to heaven. And so you should start praying right now. Lord, help me to repent of my sins and trust in Jesus. And uh, some of you may be saying, well, do, do you think that all babies go to heaven? I do, but I don't have the scriptural basis for asserting it. I think that our position is one of optimistic, uh, one of optimistic ignorance. And so I'm, I think that there is su- sufficient inference that can be drawn from the scripture to say that babies go to heaven, but I don't think that it's taught clearly in the Bible. And so where the Bible is clear, I think we should be clear. Where the Bible is not clear, we ought not to be dogmatic. And so for those of you fathers who have little children who ask you that question, I think that's a good answer to say, sweetie, the Bible teaches that people who receive Jesus and turn away from their sin go to heaven. And I'm praying for you, and I want you to pray for yourself that God will, at an early age, cause you to turn from your sin and receive Jesus as your Lord and Savior. Now that's the answer that I, a Christian parent, would give, and the answer that I recommend that you, a Christian parent, give. I don't think that that was the answer that Jewish fathers gave to their little boys and girls when they asked, Daddy, am I going to be in the kingdom of heaven? That father would probably say, Son, you already are in the kingdom of heaven. And why is that, Daddy? Because you are one of God's chosen people. And because you are a Jew, you are one of God's chosen people, and you are going to be in the kingdom of heaven. And I think that the passage of Scripture that we're getting ready to read is a rebuttal of that confident assertion that those Jewish fathers made and that presumptuous assumption that uh, the Jewish people had. There were, I think that there are two faulty ideas that underlie this text. One is that the Jewish people thought that only Jews would be in the kingdom of God. That's the first faulty idea. Only Jews will be in the kingdom of God. And the second faulty idea is that the only thing necessary to be in the kingdom of God is to be born a Jew. And so those two ideas are closely related, but they're different. Only Jews will be there, and in order to be there, all that is necessary is to be born a Jew. And so I think that uh, this conversation that Jesus has with Nicodemus is in some ways a test case. Let's just see what Jesus thinks about that theory. And then Jesus gives a, a very powerful example To the contrary, 
gives a powerful example to say that it's not just Jews who are going to be in the kingdom of heaven. But I think the Jewish fallacy was similar to something that is expressed in one of my favorite pop songs from the 1970s, a song by Andrew Gold called Lonely Boy. It's got a great guitar part in it. And uh, in the second stanza, it goes something like this. I can't quite remember. I might need to get you to help me. So it's something like this. In the summer of 63, his mother brought him a sister, and she said, we must be kind to her. She's so much younger than you. Here's the part that reminds me of this text. Well, he ran down the hall and he cried. Oh, how could his parents have lied? When they said he was the only son, he thought he was the only one. Oh, whoa, whoa, what a lonely boy. So uh, you young people can look that up a little later on. It's not often that you get some really exquisite poetry like that in pop music. Uh, but, uh, you know, when... when And this was the perspective of the Jews. Their idea was, Lord, you said we were the only one. And when you said that, we thought that we were going to be your only son. And I understand how they had that perspective. Because for about 2,000 years, God had told them, don't mix up with the Gentiles unless you're going to kill them. Or you can do business with them, but just make sure that You don't marry any of their girls, or you don't let your girls marry any of their men. You are to be a separate people. And throughout the the history of the Old Testament, you can probably count about five non-Jews who give evidence that they are going to be in heaven. I trust that there are more than that, but there's very few. You can just almost on one hand count the number of non-Jews in the Old Testament for whom you can have a pretty strong hope that they're going to be in the kingdom of heaven. Ruth the Moabitess, Rahab the harlot, a few people like that. Um, and so I understand how the Jews had that misunderstanding. It's, um, and, and so it was a big shock to the Jews in the first century when a church is established and it starts with Jews, but then they open the doors and all these icky Gentiles start coming into the church. And so there's quite a bit of teaching in the New Testament. Of course, John is writing his gospel uh, years after the influx of Gentiles has commenced. And probably by the time John is writing this gospel, there are more Gentiles who are following Jesus than there are Jews. And so he thinks this is very important teaching, this conversation that he had with Nicodemus Neither Matthew nor Mark nor John, neither Matthew, Mark, or Luke included it in his gospel. This is very important teaching to help our people understand that this has been the plan from the beginning that Gentiles would be part of God's people. And that the Jews were wrong when they sang, when, they, when he said I was the only son, I thought I was the only one. So I think that those are two very important fallacies that are... Uh, addressed in this passage of Scripture. Let me read it, and then we will go back over it, pointing out a couple of the important, really important things. I think it's helpful to read the last two verses of John chapter 2 to get you set up for what's coming in chapter 3. So if you don't have your Bibles open, just listen to this, what it says. 
Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he, he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people. Now, in the interest of being politically correct, the translators of the ESV have said, uh, have translated the word people, actually is the word for man. It says they did not entrust himself to them because he knew all men and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. And then the next thing we read is, now there was a man. There was a man of the Pharisees. So I think that, uh, well, let me read it, and then I'll make that point. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, We know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus said to him, How can these things be? Jesus answered him, Are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Now I'm going to subsume most of this text under my first heading, a test case. That's the first point, a test case. And then, at the end, spend a little time on an ancient illustration, the illustration of the serpent that was lifted up in the wilderness. But I plan to handle most of this under this first heading of a test case. So, I think that chapter 2 concludes with the impression of there were a lot of riffraff in Jerusalem that put their trust in Jesus But it was just a superficial kind of faith. They saw the miracles that he was doing and they said, this must be the Messiah. But they were not yet ready to receive the hard teachings that would come later. Later on, Jesus says to those who had believed in him, we can put believed in air quotes. If you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. And they start to fuss with him. So it's possible to have a superficial faith in Jesus you believe that he was a good man, a good teacher, and so on, and, uh, and still not be a true disciple, a follower of Jesus is going to, going to go to heaven. And so I think at the end of chapter 2, the idea is, yeah, but we know that the, the mob is easily swayed. 
Let's pick out somebody who is a thoughtful man, a contemplative man. Let's pick out someone who really knows the Bible. And uh, let's see, let's put up a test case here. And I think that Nicodemus is that test case. So chapter 2 concludes with, Jesus did not need man's testimony about man, for he knew what was in a man. And then here comes Nicodemus. Now there was a man, and, and look at the things that are said about him. There was a man of the Pharisees. Now, those of us who have been hearing the Bible all of our lives think of the Pharisees as being bad guys. And uh, they were instrumental in the crucifixion of Jesus. They became antagonists to Jesus. And even at this point, it seems like there is already some antipathy against Jesus because Nicodemus comes to Jesus at night. But uh, the Pharisees at first were just very conservative people. And so they were... Uh, Bible scholars, and they were very conservative. And, and so I don't think that we're supposed to think, well, Nicodemus is a bad guy because he's a Pharisee. Instead, I think that we ought to think Nicodemus is a really religious man because he's a Pharisee, because only a very serious religious person could be regarded as a Pharisee. And so here's our test case, and the first thing we see about him is he is an extraordinarily religious man. Will a man like that need to be born again? Notice what it says next. Now, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a member of the Jewish ruling council. That means that he was not just a religious man. He was very active in civic and religious affairs because the Jewish ruling council is kind of like our Supreme Court, only there were 70 of them on the Jewish ruling council, the Sanhedrin. Again, they became, they became part of the group that crucified Jesus But at this point, I don't think that we're supposed to think Nicodemus is a bad guy. We're supposed to think Nicodemus is a good guy. He's very religious. He's involved in civic affairs. He's a member of the Jewish ruling council. And then notice the next thing. Does a man like that need to be born again? Well, we'll see. The next thing that is said is that um, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a member of the Jewish ruling council. He came to Jesus at night. Now, if we're going to put a good construction on that, I think it at least means he's being cautious. It, it probably means that he was being cowardly. But we're trying to paint a picture of a good man here. And so let's just say that he's being cautious. That uh, he doesn't want to cause unnecessary trouble with his buddies who are Pharisees and on the Sanhedrin. And, and he doesn't... He's, he's being cautious. And so he comes to Jesus when he can have a quiet interview. There are many other reasons that you can think uh, that he would come to Jesus at night because... Uh, other than his being a coward. You know, he may have had a job during the day. Jesus may have been so busy during the day that this was the only time when Nicodemus could have a quiet interview with him. And so let's just let's give him the benefit of the doubt and say that he's being cautious. So can a, a good, cautious, discreet man, does he need to be born again? Well, we'll see. So there was a man of the Pharisees, he was very religious, named Nicodemus, a member of the Jewish ruling council. He's not just a uh, sit in the ivory towers kind of guy. He's, he's active in civic affairs. He comes to Jesus at night, and he says to him, Rabbi, we know that you're a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform the miraculous signs you are doing unless God were with him. Nicodemus is open-minded. It's not long until people are saying, yeah, it looks like Jesus is doing miracles, but he's really faking it. So in, like in John chapter 9, 
you find uh, the, 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 they call the parents of the man born blind and they say, is this your son? Is this the one you say was born blind? How can he see now? You know, the, the implication there is he's faking it. He never was really blind. The parents say, well, he's our son. He was born blind. But how he can see now, we don't know. Ask him. He is of age. He can speak for himself. And John says his parents said this because they were afraid of the Jews, for the Jews had already decided that anyone who acknowledged that Jesus was the Christ would be put out of the synagogue. And that's why his parents said he is of age. Ask him. So there were people who were saying these so-called miracles that Jesus is doing, they're just fake. That's not what Nicodemus said. And there were other people who eventually said, he's really performing miracles. There's no doubt about it. But he's not from God. He's doing these miracles by the power of evil spirits. That's not what Nicodemus said. Nicodemus said, we know that you're a teacher who's come from God, for no one could do what you're doing unless God were with him. And so he's open-minded. And then one final thing about Nicodemus He's obviously a thoughtful, contemplative man. He's thinking these things over. He sees some of these miracles. He's dumbfounded. How, How can this be? It probably kept Nicodemus up at night. He's not one of us. He hasn't studied at our seminaries. This this kind of wild fire can break out and consume the nation. Already the common people are following him. They're impressed with him we got to be careful here. This could really cause trouble. But how could a sinner do all the stuff that this guy is doing? And so finally he gets so stirred up that he comes to Jesus and he tells him all of these things. He says, we know that you're a teacher who's come from God, for no one could perform the miraculous signs that you're doing unless God were with him. I like Nicodemus. I like Nicodemus on the two other things that are mentioned about him later on. Later on in, uh, in the Gospel of John, all of Nicodemus' buddies are saying, we've got to get rid of Jesus. And Nicodemus says, does our law condemn a man without first hearing him? And they turn on him and they say, are you from Galilee too? Look into it and you'll find that a prophet does not come out of Galilee. And then after Jesus is crucified, then Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea come and ask for the body of Jesus. I think that we'll see Nicodemus in heaven. I think that Nicodemus became a follower of Jesus. And I think that all that is said about him here is to say, well, if ever a man can get to heaven on his good works, Nicodemus is that man. He's respectful. He's religious. He's active. He's, he's contemplative. If surely a guy like that can get into heaven. And Jesus says to him, I tell you the truth. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a man is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of heaven. And I think that see here is used in a, in a poetic, a metaphorical sense to say, Nicodemus, son, you, you know a lot. But you're asking about things that you need some, you need more than what you learned at the seminary here. You've got to be born again or you're not going to understand all this stuff. Jesus is saying this at the beginning of his ministry. And there's a lot of teaching that is going to come. And a lot of people found it offensive. 
And, and Jesus is saying at the outset, you're not going to understand all of this stuff unless you are born again. Now let's think about that phrase, born again. So we're still considering this test case. And Jesus says, you're one of the finest, we can say, this is one of the finest men who's ever lived on the planet. And Jesus says to him, you've got to be born again or you're not going to see the kingdom of heaven. So this phrase shows up three times in this text. Let's just explore it for just a minute. Born again has two very obvious implications. One is that there is such a radical change that takes place that it looks like a new person has come into existence. Such a radical change. And that is, that's true for Nicodemus. That's true for us. If you have been born again, you're going to be a different person. Now, I, I would say that uh, probably being born again in Willow Winfrey's case, when she was saved as a little girl, that the, the, the difference in her life is not as drastic as it would be in the life of someone who was saved as an older man in here. You know, you get, in your, you get in your 20s and your 30s, and you've had a lot of time to do a lot of bad stuff. When you get born again in your 20s or 30s, there ought to be a, a, a drastic observable change. For someone who is saved as a little girl or as a little boy, there is a change, but the change is progressively gradual. And uh, you will, Willa, you will not grow up to be the woman that you ha- would have been had you not been born again. If we could look at unconverted willow at age 35 and converted willow at age 35, there will be a vast ocean of difference between those two women. Because when you're born again, a new person, a new person comes into being. I got converted when I was 14. Before I was 14, I can't tell you how many fist fights I got into. I I bet I got into a fist fight once a month. You just cannot believe how often I got into fights. After I got converted, I had to fight my way out of one situation. But other than that, no fights. I I used to have a real problem with anger. I got converted at age 14. And until age 27, I never had a problem with, with anger. That's when I got married. And then at age 27, things got rough again. But, <laughs> but it wasn't, but let's leave that alone. So <clears throat> when I was in the ninth grade, my last year of being unconverted, I sat in the back of the classroom and cut up. I got C's and D's and I got some F's. The next year I was converted. I moved to the front of the class. I mean, I sat literally in front of the desk so that I would behave myself. I listened and I became a straight A student. I didn't all of a sudden get smarter, but what happened was my attitude changed. A person who is mean and grumpy before they're converted needs to stop being mean and grumpy after they're converted. A person who has uh, been uh, a drunkard before he gets married ought to become sober. I said before he gets converted. Before he gets converted, after he's converted, should become sober. A person who is guilty of sexual sins before he is converted, after he's converted, different. When you're born again, well, this is the way the Apostle Paul puts it. 
If anyone is in Christ Jesus, he is a new creation. A new creation. So being born again emphasizes the fact that there is a drastic change. But then there's a second thing in being born again. The second thing that's implied. And that is, you don't have much to do with it. So the first time that you were born, you didn't have much to do with it as far as I can remember. There, there may be some kind of trigger that the Lord pulls and in a baby's mind and he starts thinking about cramped quarters and needs to get out of here. And, uh, and the Lord takes care of that. But as, as far as we can tell, it's pretty much the mom who's doing it. It's pretty much the mom who is bringing this baby into the world. And now Jesus says, if you're going to be in the kingdom of God, you've got to be born again. Your first birth is not going to do it for you. You've got to be born again. This word again could also be translated from above. Either way, it, sometimes it's translated the other way. Born, born again or born from above. But in both cases, the emphasis is... There is a sovereign God who is at work bringing about this birthing process. And so those two ideas are in the phrase born again. And uh, then this idea of a sovereign God is involved in the process, I think, gets further emphasis in this passage. So Nicodemus asks in verse 4, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Now, this seems like an incredibly stupid question, an incredibly obtuse. Obviously, obviously Nicodemus does not think this is what Jesus is talking about. I think that, Jesus, that Nicodemus does know that Jesus is using a figure of speech to talk about a spiritual reality, and this is Nicodemus' way of asking for more information. So... Uh, I don't keep up with all of the phraseology that the young people are using today. And when I'm around young people, sometimes they'll use a figure of speech. And I don't know what it means. And I might ask a kind of a stupid question to just figure out what does it mean. So I thought of the example back in the 1960s when, uh, when the crowd, the, the cool crowd, cool itself is one of those things, the cool crowd started saying that things were groovy. And uh, in fact, I think there is a, an episode of the Beverly Clampets where there are some, some beatniks that come and, and he keeps calling Jed daddy and uh, talking about cool cats and so on. And just the whole episode is built on the misunderstanding of all of these figures of speech that this beatnik is using. But uh, someone might say, wow, that's really groovy. And uh, someone like me might say, you mean it's, it's covered with little ditches? No, it's, it's a way of talking about something else. It means it's really cool, man. You mean it's cold? No, you're so square, you know. So that's the way that whole episode of the Beverly Hillbillies goes. And so I think that something like that is going on here. I don't think that Jesus is being groovy or cool. But I do think that he is using a figure of speech Nicodemus recognizes, and he asks, tell me more about that. And so Jesus does tell him more about that. What are you talking about? 
And Jesus says in verse 5, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Now, there are some of you who probably uh, are, have friends who say, this is a passage of Scripture that teaches that you've got to be baptized in order to be saved. And uh, I read to you a few minutes ago from Ezekiel chapter 36, uh, For a while, I carried a Bible. I just wrote in the margin, Ezekiel chapter 36, verses 22 through 32, so that when I was having a conversation with someone, I would know the Old Testament passage that Jesus was referring to here, where in in the book of Ezekiel, I said Isaiah, but I meant Ezekiel, in the book of Ezekiel chapter 36, the Lord there says, I will sprinkle clean water on you and cleanse you from your uncleannesses, and I will put a new heart in you. I think Jesus is making reference to that passage of Scripture when he says you must be born of water. I think that this is, a, this is a poetic way of referring to the fact that you have got to be cleansed from your sins. You've got to repent of your sins. And uh, you must be born of water in the Spirit. And if so, you cannot enter the kingdom of God. Earlier, Jesus said you cannot see the kingdom of God. You're not going to learn the least thing unless you're born again. And you're not going to enter the kingdom of God unless you're born of water and the Spirit. And so now I think, beginning in verse 6, Jesus is emphasizing the fact that this must be the case. It must be the case that you have to be born again. Because by your first birth, you're just born a a person, a fleshly person. Verse 6, that which is born of the flesh is flesh. When, you're, when your cat is going to have babies, she has kittens. She doesn't have puppies. When your dog is going to have babies, she has little puppies. She doesn't have pigs. You know, that's the flesh gives birth to flesh. People give birth to people. Sinful people give birth to sinful people. And so if you're going to enter the kingdom of God where there's nothing defiling or unclean that is permitted there, you must be born again. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but you need something from outside yourself to give you a spiritual birth. That which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. That's the third time in this passage that Jesus has used this new phrase, born again. And now he gives a couple of examples of how that God is sovereignly directing the, the process of the new birth. And the first example is the wind. Notice what he says about the wind here. The wind blows where it wishes. Now I think that already Jesus is getting ready to teach Nicodemus the lesson You think that the wind just blows in Israel, but the wind is fixing to blow all over the earth. The wind blows where it pleases. You hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. There's plenty of mystery that is involved in the new birth. It's like the wind. It's the way it is with everyone who is born to the Spirit. But if if the wind doesn't blow, you will not be born of the Spirit. This, I think, is calculated to help to help us to get rid of those ideas that we are in control of this ourselves. 
that we can be whatever we want to be. If we want to be a Christian, I can, I can become a Christian whenever I want to. And this passage of Scripture says, don't be so presumptuous about that. You need the help of the Holy Spirit. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it is going. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Those of you who are listening to this sermon in this room or on the Internet, if you want to know how to be born again, you need to have the Holy Spirit. Make that part of your prayer. God, give me the Holy Spirit so that I might understand what I need to know and believe what I need to believe because I want to be part of your kingdom. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus breaks in, verse 9, How can these things be? Jesus answered him, Are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? It's taught in the Old Testament. And now, in addition to the witness of the Old Testament, you now have an accredited witness telling you that these things are true. And Jesus himself is that accredited, trustworthy witness. Notice how he describes his accreditation here. We speak of what we know, Jesus says, and bear witness to what we have seen. I didn't hear this from somebody else, Jesus is saying. I've, I've seen this. But still, you're reluctant to believe it. On the basis of the Old Testament, you don't believe it. On the basis of my testimony, you're not receiving my testimony. If I've told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. So Jesus is saying, I've seen these things. No one else has come down from heaven the way that I have. But I have, and I'm telling you, if you're going to see the kingdom of heaven, you must be born again. And now, so that's my first point. And then the second point is much briefer. It's just this one verse in verse 14. This is an ancient illustration. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. We read this story as one of our scripture readings in the early part of the service. The people of Israel had been bitten by snakes. It was a judgment that was sent from God, and the people were dying. They came to Moses. They said, we have sinned. And the Lord told Moses, make a statue of a snake. Make it like one of these serpents that's biting the people. Make it out of bronze. Put it up on a pole. Lift it up so that anyone who wants to see it can see it. And everyone who looks at that snake on the pole will be healed of their snake bite. And so I can imagine that as Moses obeyed the teaching of the Lord and made this strange little statue and then he lifted up on the pole that he himself, and along with heralds that he sent to carry the news, spread throughout the camp saying, if you will look at the snake on the pole, God says you will be healed. Now that's something that took a little bit of faith. I mean, because you talk about snake oil, that sounds like snake oil right there. That, that's ridiculous. How, how could anybody possibly be, be healed by just looking at a snake on the pole? I can imagine that there may have been a, uh, a father who was languishing in the final minutes of his life, uh, debilitated and swollen and feverish with this snake bite. And his little boy comes in and says, Daddy, I just heard Mr. Moses say that if you will just look at that snake on the pole, you will be healed. 
And the father said, well, son, that's ridiculous. Who ever heard of such a thing? I need medicine. I need a doctor. Go get the doctor. No, daddy. If you will just, if you'll just look at the snake on the pole, you will be healed. I know it. Please look at the snake on the pole. And I like to think that maybe that father dragged himself over to the, the door of the tent and lifted himself up on one elbow, and maybe his face was... Maybe his face was so swollen that he had to take his eyes, take his fingers and pry open his eye. Looked at that snake on the pole, and he felt the healing start to come in his body. And then I think that daddy probably went to another tent and said, It works. It works. Go look at the snake on the pole. And people, some people probably said, Oh, that's, that's silliness. But everyone who looked at the snake on the pole was healed. And Jesus says, Nicodemus, just like Moses lifted up that snake in the wilderness, even so the Son of Man must be lifted up. Now, lifted up has a dual meaning here. One is that it's exalted so that it can be seen. But also when Jesus talks about being lifted up, he's talking about being crucified. It It is a euphemism for being executed. So that if someone was hanged, They were said to be lifted up. When Jesus was crucified on the cross, he was lifted up. And so when Jesus was lifted up, he was lifted up on the cross and he was executed. From the perspective of humans, he was was executed as a troublemaker, a heretic. But from the perspective of God, he was lifted up as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And what happened on the cross is that the sins of everyone who would believe in him were put on Jesus. And now everyone who believes in him, he doesn't have to be a Jew. He doesn't have to be a religious man. He doesn't have to be a contemplative man. You might be so far gone that you've got to drag yourself to the door of the tent and and lift up the fingers of faith and point your eyes towards Jesus on the cross. But if you look to Jesus on the cross, trusting him, then you will be healed of your sin. And he will save you from your sin. Whoever, Jesus says, whoever looks to him will be saved. And so Nicodemus, it's not just Jews who are going to be in the kingdom of heaven. And being a Jew will not get you into the kingdom of heaven. You must be born again. But here's the good news, Nicodemus. All you got to do is look. My favorite preacher is Charles Haddon Spurgeon. He's been dead since 1892. When he was a young boy, he was stirred up about his salvation. His father was a preacher. His grandfather was a preacher. But uh, instead of steadily attending the places where his father and grandfather was preaching, he decided that he would walk through that community and attend all the churches that he could so that he might hear how to be saved. And one snowy morning he set out, and he was, he was not able to get to the place where he intended to go. And the snow was so bad that he, he's walking, he turns aside into a little primitive Methodist chapel. And there weren't many people who were there that morning, In fact, the preacher could not make it that morning. And when the people looked around and saw that uh, 
saw that the preacher wasn't there, then I'm sure they looked to one of the deacons or one of the laymen and said, could you, could you give us a message this morning? So the man hadn't prepared, but he opens his Bible to a text that I'm sure had meant a lot to him, and it was the text in the Old Testament that says, Look unto me, and be you saved, all ye ends of the earth. And the man preached for three or four minutes, and Spurgeon later testified. It was clear that after a few minutes, he was at the end of his tether, didn't know what else to say. And he looked out there, and he saw me sitting, and he said, Young man, you look very miserable. And Spurgeon said, Well, I did, but I wasn't accustomed to having comments made on my personal appearance from the pulpit. Young man, you look very miserable, and you'll be miserable in life, and you'll be miserable in death unless you obey the words of my text. Look unto Jesus, and you'll be saved. Look at him as he's hanging upon the cross. Look at him as he's rising from the dead. Look at him as he's being raised up to heaven in the ascension. Look, and Spurgeon wrote, I saw the way of salvation in a moment. I looked until I thought I could look my eyes out. And the Lord saved C.H. Spurgeon that day. And he'll save you today too. Look unto Jesus. Look at him lifted up like the serpent on the pole to heal sinners. Look at him lifted up. Trust in him. And he will save you from your sin. Jim Bob, come and lead us in a concluding hymn.